the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, Quis Custodiat Ipsos Custodes. That's the Latin phrase from the Roman poet Juvenal, who is asking, who shall govern the governors? Keep that in mind a moment. I was having a discussion with my friend Jim this morning about the FBI's abuses, their overreach, their politicalization. He asked if this is the worst it's ever been. It's a tough question to which there is a yes and a no. But the yes part is the most disturbing. Bear with me. Of course, throughout our history, we had tremendous violations of civil liberties, and that's what we're talking about, civil liberties, the norms of peaceful and constitutional life in America, attended to and protected by the Bill of Rights from our First Amendment to our Second, Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, Eighth, and Fourteenth. These were appended to our Constitution to ensure protection from the government's tendencies and the mob's tendencies to violate our freedoms. There were in the past the Alien and Sedition Acts early on, and there was the Palmer Raids under Woodrow Wilson. There was the Second Red Scare during the 1940s and 1950s. People were put in prison. People lost their jobs. People couldn't get work. People were even deported out of the United States. This is probably a good time as any for me to bring back the quote from Reinhold Niebuhr that, quote, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. Hold that thought as well. So at the level of volume, the era we are in may not be as historically bad as some of our excesses in the past, perhaps we're about on par with those excesses. But there is one major difference my friend pointed out and I came to conclude was right. And it goes to the question asked by Juvenal. In days past, there was a consensus as to who would govern the governors, who would check our elected leaders, the power, the man, the violators of civil liberties when they came. And that was always and forever since our beginning, the media and the press. The press was almost always seen as inherently ab initio, not only skeptical of government policies, reports, statements, versions of fact and truth, but also unrelenting in its investigation and reporting on those things. This was, of course, true during the Palma, Palmer era, as it was during the McCarthy era. This was true of Vietnam, and it was true of the excesses of the CIA engaging in domestic surveillance and political operations that came to light in the mid-1970s. And whenever the government tried to silence the press or invoke silence in the name of national security, First Amendment lawyers in the media would generally and instinctively say things like, well, whenever you hear the government invoke national security, you know a crime is either being committed or a lie is being told. That went too far. It, of course, was not always true. But that was the operational mindset and sentiment of lawyers and the media. 
And then something changed, which is why it is worse now than in any of the historical excesses we learned about in school. What changed is the media, the press. They became the handmaidens of the government when the government was run by the Democratic Party. You may recall what created online social news media. Two words, Matt Drudge. And you may want to recall what made him famous. The mainstream media spiking a story. It was from the Washington Post and Newsweek, scuttling, canceling a story about Bill Clinton's sex scandal. Drudge took it and ran with it, and the rest of the media was forced to catch up, having spiked it in the first place. But they didn't like doing it, and they didn't like being overruled by a one-man operation with a dial-up modem and a felt hat and with no editors. And as schools of journalism caught up to every other kind of professional school, like law schools and schools of education, the point was to educate not in any neutral and equal effort, but on outcomes, decidedly political and ideological direction and outcome, left-wing outcomes. The original Journalists' Creed, still posted at the National Press Club, was issued in 1908. And it bears repeating in whole here, just so you can see the distance we have traveled for the point I'm trying to make here. The Creed reads thus, and I'm going to bet no journalist under the age of 40, which is most journalists today, has any familiarity with it whatsoever. Or if they do, they will think of it as they've been thought to think of it as the work of a bygone era written by a dead white man that is not suitable to the emergent times we live in. But here it is from 1908, University of Missouri School of Journalism. I believe that the public journal is a public trust that all connected with it are to the full measure of their responsibility, trustees for the public. That acceptance of a lesser service than the public service is a betrayal of this trust. I believe that clear thinking and clear statement, accuracy and fairness are fundamental to good journalism. I believe that a journalist should write only what he holds in his heart to be true. I believe that suppression of the news for any consideration other than the welfare of society is indefensible. I believe that no one should write as a journalist what he would not say as a gentleman. That bribery by one's own pocketbook is as much to be avoided as bribery by the pocketbook of another. That individual responsibility may not be escaped by pleading another's instructions or another's dividends. I believe that advertising news and editorial columns should alike serve the best interests of readers, that a single standard of helpful truth and cleanness should prevail for all, that the supreme test of good journalism is the measure of its public service. I believe that the journalism which succeeds best and best deserves success, fears God and honors man, is stoutly independent, unmoved by pride of opinion or greed of power, constructive, tolerant, but never careless, self-controlled, patient, always respectful of its readers, but always unafraid, is quickly indignant at injustice, is unswayed by the appeal of privilege or the clamor of the mob, seeks to give every man a chance, and, as far as law and honest wage and recognition of human brotherhood can make it so an equal chance, is profoundly patriotic while sincerely promoting international goodwill and cementing world comradeship. It is a journalism of humanity of and for today's world. That's the journalist's creed. 
pretty incredible to think of what 100 years of progressivism and outcome-based journalism like outcome-based jurisprudence has brought us. So, yeah, it's a lot worse now because those we relied on to govern the governors are no longer watchmen, but water carriers for the governors. If the governors are Democrats or liberals or left-wingers, what can think of so many examples? But just take a moment to think about how many times the press has aped the notion that Republicans unprecedentedly questioned the sanctity of the election of 2020 and how dangerous that is, all the while burying Nancy Pelosi and Jimmy Carter and Hillary Clinton doing the same thing for years, or for that matter, just this sample of literally 150 examples of Democrats questioning the elections of George W. Bush. Not even Trump in 2016, but Bush in 2000 and 2004. Al Gore repeatedly claimed that he was the real winner of the 2000 election. In 2002, Al Gore claimed, quote, he would have won, close quote, if every vote in Florida was counted, and that he absolutely believed he would become president after the ordered recount. Al Gore's wife, Tipper, said that, quote, I still believe we won, close quote. In 26, excuse me, in 2017, Gore said Jeb Bush may have had something to do with him losing Florida. Gore in 2017 said, quote, actually, I think I carried Florida, close quote. Hillary Clinton more than once questioned the legitimacy of the 2000 election. In 2002, Hillary Clinton said Bush had been selected and not elected president. In 2016, Clinton said that the Supreme Court took away a presidency in Bush v. Gore. Then-President Bill Clinton, early in 2001, claimed that Gore actually won the election, suggesting that all the votes in Florida were not counted and that the Supreme Court had altered the outcome. He said, quote, the only way Republicans could win the election was to stop the votes being counted in Florida, close quote. Former President Jimmy Carter has repeatedly denied the results of the 2000 election. Carter, here in 2005, said, quote, there is no doubt in my mind that Al Gore was elected president, close quote. Carter, in 2014, quote, I don't think that George W. Bush won the election in 2000, close quote. And, of course, in 2004, the current chairman of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, along with current legislators Ed Markey and Raul Grijalva from Arizona, voted not to certify the Ohio delegation's vote for George Bush in 2004, questioning the legitimacy of Ohio's vote-counting processes. In a day where the press took their duty seriously, or at least not as outcome-based, you would know that from the many interviews and questions and reportage of and on these leading figures in the Democratic Party. But you don't know that because they don't get asked about that. You know this, if you know it, only because of a partisan response from either the RNC or talk radio or some blogs here and there. This would be but one example. We could spend a week on other examples. For those who think violence, especially political violence, is a terrible thing, the phrase people will do what people will do from Nancy Pelosi when asked about it would be as familiar or a refrain in this country and in the media as the phrase insurrection. The media would be asking Joe Biden why he hasn't condemned the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh 
or why he can say political violence is a right-wing phenomenon given the summer of 2020. Or the press simply lying to our faces in real time with backdrops of burning police precincts telling us the protests were mostly peaceful. I can do this for weeks. A disinformation board? Nothing in George Bush's Patriot Act comes as close to the alien and sedition acts as a disinformation board. But the media seemed pretty cool to that story, if not hip to it, telling us disinformation is a bad thing, even when it was the government that was deciding what was true and what was false, rather than the media being able to hold the government accountable for what was true and what was not. They don't even abide by their own standards. The Washington Post puts on its masthead, democracy dies in darkness. And then, just as of yesterday, for one example, prints a leak from the Department of Justice about the content of nuclear information found in the Mar-a-Lago raid, but leaves us in the dark as to what that information was and who leaked it, allowing us not to judge for ourselves the credibility or veracity of the claim. In other words, concealing information from us while they, playing the role of the guardians of the guardians rather than the governors of the governors and the questioners of truth to power, peddle only the information the government, based on partisan efforts, wants us to have and know. Once upon a time, even the progressive left believed this. As Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis put it, Quote, recognizing the occasional tyrannies of governing majorities, our founders amended the Constitution so that free speech and press and assembly should be guaranteed, close quote. Whenever someone sues the press today, the press invokes cases like New York Times v. Sullivan or New York Times versus the United States, reminding the courts and the world that the purpose of the press to do whatever it wants is precisely in order to hold the government accountable and not to work hand in glove with it. I can do this for weeks, but the words of Hugo Black and William O. Douglas ought to suit for now just fine. As they put it in the Pentagon Papers case, quote, in the First Amendment, the founding fathers gave the free press the protection it must have to fulfill its essential role in our democracy. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever free to censure the government. The press was protected so that it could bear the secrets of government and inform the people. Only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government. And paramount among the responsibilities of a free press is the duty to prevent any part of the government from deceiving the people. Close quote. And that is why it is worse today, because the major press, the commercial press, is happy and feels the charge to do just exactly that, that, deceive the people while covering for the government and leave us with an extraordinary second and third White House communications department. That is an example of a march through the institutions as well. Call us semi-fascists if you want. But the long march through the institutions is a communist Marxist strategy and the co-opting of the media by the government with the media willingly being co-opted is redolent of nothing so much as Mussolini's Italy and Adolf Hitler's Germany. That's why man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary and why we, the conservatives, 
are the only movement today that makes democracy possible. No matter how Hillary and Joe try to spin and conceal it and themselves, it's still the conservative movement that makes democracy possible. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. They are offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm run by investors who do really well by doing good for others. And you can be a part of that, too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087, I've spent a lot of time on this show talking about uh, what we're going to talk about with our next guest, Bethany Mandel, coming up, Um, and let me just tell you, it's it's about how we're teaching children and what we're subjecting them to. There's a story on FoxNews.com about a teacher in California, in Orange County, Southern California. It's, I think, one of the largest school districts in California, Capistrano School District. The teacher is boasting about her library for kids, for her kids, of over 100 books um, containing imagery uh, that I can't describe on the radio, uh, sexual imagery, uh, information on orgies and sex parties. And the teacher's defense and promotion of this is that this is what gets kids to read. I'd, I'd, I, I can't think of a perfect analog or even an exact analog to this way of thinking. How did Lincoln put it? Our case is new, so we must think anew. I guess we have to come up with new and creative analogs to to think about how to respond to such nonsense, but I suppose it would be the equivalent of saying the only way I can get my children to learn how to swim is having them swim in a toxic waste dump. Uh, The only way I can teach my children to breathe is to do so in a smog-infested environment. Um, I don't know. It seems to me we had a high watermark of literacy in this country in the 1960s. In fact, those were our highest SAT scores on record, circa 1964. And it wasn't because we were teaching children to read about orgies and sex parties and Things too gross for me to even get into. But if you think it doesn't exist, it does, and it exists in increasing proliferation. Take a look at the Fox News article, and I'll give you the warning they give you. This article contains explicit information. Or stand by, and we'll see what the great Bethany Mandel has to say about it when we come right back. And we will be right back. Portions of the show brought to you by Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com. I take it every single day. You can too. Pure potent plant power. Best product I've ever taken to boost your energy and health and immunity. All natural. Balanceofnature.com. Discount code BALANCE. 
Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It is a delight to bring back to the show Bethany Mandel. Bethany is a lot of things. She is the editor of the Heroes of Liberty book series. She is a contributing writer at the Deseret News, columnist at Fox News, um, and a very active and important Twitter account. You can follow her on Twitter at Bethany Shondark, at Bethany Sean Dark. And I saw two things that I knew I wanted to talk to her about. First of all, Bethany, uh, thank you for joining us and welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. There's a story up at Fox News. You don't see this too often. Maybe we need to get used to this. It has a warning at the top. This article contains explicit information. It's about a high school teacher who is boasting that in her classroom are over 100 books containing all kinds of sexual imagery, information on orgies, sex parties, and I'll just say it, we don't need to get into it, BDSM, high school students. Uh, and I thought of you because you are pushing against this culture with your own series of books, but what, and we'll do this in the second segment when it comes to COVID, but what the heck are we doing with our children racializing them and sexualizing them like this? How is this possible? So, I mean, I, I'm tempted to make a joke. You, you saw children reading books about BDSM and you, immediately your first thought was, oh, Bethany Mandel. That's right. Right. <laughs> Bethany Shondark Mandel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, this is this is exactly why we started Heroes of Liberty, because it is so disturbing what passes for appropriate uh, literature in classrooms and in libraries around the country, both, you know, classroom libraries and school libraries and, and public libraries. But, you know, the American Library Association is doing something called Banned Books Week mm -hmm. coming up, I think, in a week. Yeah. I think it starts on the 18th. And they're doing this sneaky thing where they're accusing conservatives of trying to ban books. When you look at the books that they're sort of proclaiming we're trying to ban, they're pornographic in yeah. nature. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, some of them are so graphic that when parents have had have tried to talk about the content or read the content, they have their microphones cut off at public meetings because it is so obscene. That's right. And so, you know, I, I, I just I, I think that parents, Think of their children reading as, as an always positive thing. And we need to break parents of that assumption that any book is a good book because, I mean, we know not every food is a good food. And, right. and that, that principle needs to apply to the books and literature as well. We have to be careful of what our children are consuming. When you speak publicly about this, Bethany, not to me, obviously, or people like me and people like you, but when you speak to more general audiences, do you find the struggle that I find, which is people actually aren't prepared to believe this? They see it. Yeah. They hear it. They have no concept of the filth, the obscene filth, probably even illegal material that is being um, peddled to our kids. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I honestly, I, I, I'm afraid of the, the FCC when I talk about it, because I don't know how graphic I can get. And right. I'm also aware that your listeners are driving in the car with right. their children. And, right. and I'm a parent and I don't. But I, I just I, I really implore people to go look up the images of these books. One of them is called Gender Queer. Mm -hmm. um, but they are 
pornographic, just completely full stop pornographic. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really, um, it's really disturbing that this is, this is what passes for children's literature now. And, um, and parents need to be careful. I, I heard from a friend the other day that her son has been reading books for the last four years, a series of books, and she looked at the latest book and it, it had content in it about a non-binary character and and all of these things are also being normalized among sort of children. It's this idea that gender is a social construct, yada, yada. Um, but, I mean, this is this is how they're trying to get the next generation of kids. Yeah, this goes a step further than all that, doesn't it? Or maybe several steps. This is effectively Hustler magazine in your schools. You make a good point about, you know, can I even talk about these books over radio airwaves when it comes to things like the FCC? These are books that if you sent the passages of by email might be illegal, might 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 even get the FBI's notice. But we're trying to be told or I guess the attempt is to be told that this is absolutely normal for children and anything they read is good to get them reading. Well, it's a funny thing because I'm going to a break. I'd like to talk to you about how our children are doing when it comes to reading. And if the left and the liberals and the progressive movement really gave a damn what they could have done not to erase our children's ability to read, no English and even mathematics. Can you stay with me another segment and talk about that on the other side? Absolutely. Wonderful. I thank you. This was a short segment. We'll have a longer segment coming right up. With Bethany Mandel. She is uh, the editor of Heroes of Liberty. Check them out. This is the antidote to the problem. Heroesofliberty.com. A lot of people curse the darkness. Bethany lit a candle. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's a delight to have Bethany Mandel with us. She is, among other things, the editor of the Heroes of Liberty book series, series Heroes of Liberty. Com. Bethany, I don't know if you're like me, but one of the things that uh, bothers me to no end is when um, when we get bad reports, bad analysis about social policy, like we just did from um, the National Center for Education Statistics or like we did from the Department of Education a few months ago on the rise of mental health problems amongst our youth, when people, credible people say, well, we were all wrong. Well, we weren't all wrong. Not all of us were wrong. People like you and me, we were warning about the dangers of these comprehensive COVID shutdowns as early as March of 2020. Not all of us were wrong. Just the fancy people were wrong. You get at this in a current piece you have at the Daily Mail. You were smeared as a grandma killer. Talk to us about what you're getting at in your piece at the Daily Mail, Bethany. Yeah, absolutely. So I basically said, you know, I, I, prioritized normalcy for my children. Mm-hmm. I made sure that my kids had a normal existence. I saw just in over the course of a few weeks what locking them down was doing to their social and emotional health. And I decided, you know, I'm I'm looking at the data out of uh, out of China and out of Italy and kids are not affected. Right. And I'm basically going to make a choice between my kids getting COVID and my kids being isolated. Mm-hmm. And what what are the risks of both? And I think that that's something that we didn't do on a public policy standpoint. We didn't weigh the the downsides of masking and isolation. And we were gaslit. We were told that there were no downsides. But, of course, there are downsides. And so as a parent, I decided that I was comfortable with my children contracting COVID. 
And that was something that I was canceled for after the grammar killer sort of thing in May of 2020 when I said, you know, we have to weigh these on a societal basis, sort of closing all of these businesses and museums and nonprofits. Um, but I think that this, this acknowledgement that it's okay for a child to get COVID was something that we really weren't able to save for two years. And I don't understand why, because we knew that kids were fine and, and they are fine. And um, there are, of course, downsides, but none of those were measured. This grandma killer business, this is an interesting sociological problem. I, I don't know if I've got my hands around it quite, but it's an odd thing where we were blaming children or adults were blaming children or maybe using them to soothe the anxieties of adults um, a, a, as if we were some kind of medieval uh, medieval society uh, that uh, that was afraid of its own children. There's the old phrase, uh, every revolution eats its own children. The full quote is, like Saturn, every revolution eats its own children. Saturn was known as eating his children because he was afraid they would take over his throne. Um, it's a weird thing to tell children we are afraid of you, and it's a weird thing to have adults who should know better blame children and put and foist their anxieties on children. But that's what we did, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what's, what's really disturbing is that we were told that um, that we had to lock our children down in order to keep the elderly safe. Right. We had to, my kids had to be isolated in order to protect the grandmas of the world. Mm -hmm. And what I never understood was, why is it up to my children to isolate from everything and everyone instead of the at-risk population isolating themselves? Right. These people kept on saying to me when I refused to lock down my children, well, how will you feel if she kills grandma or <laughs> he kills grandma? And yeah. I said, why is grandma near my children? Right. If, my ch if my children are, are disease vectors, why are they near them? And... My children's grandparents did not go near my children of their own choosing sure. until they were vaccinated. And that was their choice. Yeah. But we didn't we decided as a family we were not going to sacrifice our children in order to assuage the the feelings of adults. But that was not a choice that most people made. No, or or given uh, the ability to make if they wanted to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't even take the common sense step back for a moment. We were told, well, children will bring it home and, and yes, kill grandma. At, Adam Carolla the other day was just saying to his, his own staff, which is which is prodigious, he said, how many of you know of any children that live with their grandmas? I mean, we didn't yeah. even take that step back for a moment. And I thought about yeah. that and I thought, yeah, how many children live with their grandma? Some. I don't know any. So, I mean, if there are some, then those families should have been accommodated right. with a Zoom school. We right. should not have put every single child in Zoom school because one kid in an entire classroom lives with grandma. Right. There were steps that we could have taken to isolate and protect the actually vulnerable. But children were never among them. And I, we knew that very early on. And yet, you know, I remember vividly in June or July of 2020, ripping down the caution tape around the, the local playground of my kids, you know, around the corner from us, because I was sick of it. I Bless was you. Done, oh, you know, you're a hero of liberty. That, you're a hero. Of, that's great. I love that. Good. Keep going. Uh, but yeah, I decided that, you know, 
I was done playing along. Mm -hmm. And I was done playing along when, you know, everyone else was masking their children in stores. And I said no. And people confronted me about it constantly up until probably eight months ago. Mm -hmm. And and someone, a guy came up to me in the supermarket and said, you know, they're supposed to be masked. And I said, I don't care. Yep. But you can stay away. At that point, he had access to two shots and a booster and in 95. (laughs) And I said, if you're still scared of my children, you shouldn't be out in public. Yeah. That's a you problem, right? That's yep, what, that's, that's what we right. call a you problem. Does it does it rattle your um, your soul or your brain when you see people like Randy Weingarten, now the head of the AFT, say that we have to do something about this learning loss? Finally, they're now talking about learning loss. I I, I think of it as the pirate maniac uh, lamenting the burnt ashes in front of her. This is the person who torched these places, and now she's that's, lamenting it. Yep, that's exactly right. I mean. There was a back-to-school, and I mentioned this in my Daily Mail column, mm-hmm. there was a back-to-school webinar with all of the arsonists. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the Biden administration, all the heads of the teachers' union, and there was just there was just no acknowledgement of responsibility. The superintendent of the Alexandria, Virginia Public Schools uh, recently, you know, voluntarily left his job, and he was hired by American University to run their DEI, their Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Meanwhile, this man was responsible for catastrophic learning loss of an entire generation of black and brown children. And now he is tasked with training teachers. There's just absolutely no accountability. This is this is what frustrates and will continue to frustrate for years to come because it's going to take years to overcome this. Well, Bethany, you're generous with, with your time. You're generous with your efforts. I thank you so much. I knew I wanted to talk to you having read your column in that story out of California. Let me direct people once again, heroesofliberty.com. You want uh, to stop cursing the darkness, which is important, and light a candle? Bethany did it. Heroesofliberty.com. Check out those books. For your children. Bethany, Godspeed. Thank you, as always. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I'm Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I think this is some of the most important things we can be discussing uh, the rearing and the raising of the next generation, the care and protection and nurturing of our children. This is a society that actually used to care about it. It's a society that has now grown callous about it. And I think it's because uh, too many adults are basically children in adult bodies. They are immature adults who have not been able to assimilate the world around them in a responsible and mature way. Hannah Arendt was on to this in the 1950s. Uh, looking at what progressive education was doing. That was the very phrase she's she used back then. She said the caricature of progressive education is by abolishing the authority of adults, implicitly denying their responsibility for the world into which they have borne their children and refuses the duty of guiding them into it. We have now come to the point where it is the children who are being asked to change and improve the world by the exertions of adults. And we have now come to the point where we now have our political battles fought out in the schoolyards of our children. That's exactly right. The use and abuse of children by the progressive left, it isn't new. 
You think about those youth movements of Mao. You think about the youth movements of the National Socialists. You think of the youth movements of the fascists. You think of the youth movements of every totalitarian uh, ideology in years past. And in some cases, Cuba, China, still going on today. I just didn't think we'd see it here. But we were warned about it. We didn't do enough about it. And it is here now. It's our effort to push back and change it. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 